In Colossians chapter 4, you will see that the Apostle Paul is commending certain individuals, speaking about their faithfulness in service to the Lord. And one in particular who was a helper in God's work, acknowledged to be so by the Apostle, was a man called Epaphras. Epaphras was the subject of our study the last time. We referred to him as a mighty man of God, and he was. He was a mighty man in preaching. He was a mighty man in passion, for he was fervent for the Lord. And he was a mighty man in prayer. And those are three great elements that should be found in every servant of God. In relation to his praying, there's mention made of the character of his prayers. Uh, His prayers were fervent and they were agonizing. Prayer to Epaphras was not something that you did in the playground. Prayer for Epaphras belonged to the battlefield. He labored in prayer. He agonized in prayer. Uh, He was a man who really meant what he was praying to the Lord. He was persistent in his praying. He was a man who was fervent and agonizing in his supplication. But as well as the character of his prayers, we can notice the continuity of his prayers. Paul uses a word there, always. Epaphras, who is one of you, Colossians 4.12, a servant of Christ saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. This is something he did all the time. And so often our praying is by fits and starts, isn't it? We, we pray for something and then we forget about it for a while and then we maybe remember and, and start back praying about it again. We're so inconsistent at times in our praying and we need the Lord's help with that. Epaphras had continuity in his praying. He was always praying for the Colossian Christians and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. But we should also pay attention to the content of his prayers. He prayed for the believers of these three aforementioned churches. Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. They were neighboring congregations. And not only did he pray for each of those churches by name and the folks within them, but he had particular requests for them that he brought before God. And Paul mentions this in verse 12, that he was always laboring fervently in prayers, For this purpose, that, and that means in order that, for this purpose, to this end, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Epaphras praying centered upon the subject of the will of God. And this is a vital topic for any Christian. God's will. Epaphras didn't want those churches to be deluded by error. He was very keen that they would avoid the false teachings of people like the Gnostics and others who were operating in those areas. 
Not only did he not want them to be deluded by these errors, but to remain true and steadfast to their confession of faith in Christ. That they might be fully assured in all the will of God. That's the idea here. That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He wanted them to be fully assured in all the will of God. Really what he desired for them, and this is what he prayed about, was that they would stand firm as mature Christians and that they would continue to be fully assured in regard to all that God willed regarding them. He didn't want them to be all over the place in their thinking. He wanted them to be focused, to have a laser focus on doing the will of God. I have to say there's nothing more satisfying to a Christian than the assurance that he's living in the center of the will of God. There's no better place to be than to know that I am where I'm supposed to be. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I know who I'm doing it for. I have the assurance that I'm living according to the will of God. That is, all other things being equal. None of us are perfect. We don't get absolutely everything right. But knowing that God often takes the will for the deed, we are seeking to do His will. We have a heart to do that. It's a good thing to be in the center of the will of God. You should never rest until you know that you are in the center of God's will. And there are several things to be noted regarding the will of God. And I want to seek to leave those with you tonight. Epaphras is praying here, you will note again, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. The first thing I want us to think about is the problem of discernment in discovering the will of God. The problem of discernment in discovering the will of God. Now, in a general sense, we can say that the will of God is the teaching of the Scriptures. And that's not hard to discern. It's easy to know what God's will is in regard to His commandments. You just have to read them. Read the Ten Commandments. We know what God's will is. That we put Him first. That we aren't worshipping graven images. That we're not taking His name in vain. That we're keeping the Sabbath day holy. That we're honoring our parents. That we're not involved in murder, in adultery, in stealing. In telling lies and in covetousness. We know what the will of God is. We know there are various other things that are spoken of in the Scripture that are for every Christian the will of God. We don't have to ask the question, should we pray? We know that we should pray because the commands are there all over the place. Continue in prayer. Pray without ceasing. Watch unto prayer. Brethren, pray for us. You don't need to ask, I wonder if God wants me to pray. We know that God wants us to pray. That's His will. You don't have to ask the question, should I read my Bible? Of course you should read your Bible. The Bible says, seek you out of the book of the Lord and read. In Psalm 1, we know that the blessed man is the one who meditates in his law day and night. According to Joshua 1 verse 8, this is the way to find prosperity. That's the way you'll make your way prosperous and you'll have good success 
if this book of the law does not depart out of your mouth. We know the Bible teaches that we are to keep His commandments, that we are to read His Word, that we are to pray. There's no problem discerning the will of God in these matters. We know it's the will of God for us to be a witness and a testimony for Christ in our day and generation. It is the will of God that we have a burden for souls. It is the will of God that we desire that others might come to heaven with us. These are all things that are clearly the will of God. But sometimes, when it comes to everyday living, it can be hard for a Christian to know what God's will is for him or her. It's not easy. It can be exceedingly difficult, in fact, to make decisions. Now, there are certain decisions in life that are easy to make. But sometimes, even lesser decisions can be difficult for some people. There's a story of a man told who was given a job sorting out potatoes. He was told to sort those potatoes into three categories, small ones, medium-sized ones, and large ones. After three days, he told his employer that he could not take the stress of his job. The boss said, what do you mean stress? What's giving you stress? And the potato sorter said, I can't stick the stress of constantly making decisions. Small ones, medium ones, large ones. Some decisions in life come easily, but others not so much. And yet the Lord has promised, has he not, to guide us. In Psalm 32 verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. What a promise that is. I've pleaded that many times before the Lord. Many, many times I've taken that verse to the Lord and I've said, Lord, you've told us that you will guide us with your eye. That you will instruct us and you will teach us in the way that we should go. Lord, do this. But even though we have that promise that the Lord will guide us in making decisions, we might be tested and tried and we might be made to wait until we discover with certainty what his will is. Sometimes the Lord will wait. Sometimes the Lord will have you to wait. If you go back to that verse in Colossians chapter 1, verse number 9, you'll notice carefully what it says there. We do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, knowing what the Lord's will is. Now, undoubtedly, we can know what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5.17 states this clearly. If you look at it, you'll see that it's a very, very clear instruction. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. God wants you, as a believer, to know what his will is for you. And he not only wants you to know what his will is for you, but he wants you to know his will that you might do it. 
See, it's not enough to know the will of God. You have to also be willing to do the will of God. And we'll come back to that. Didn't the Lord Jesus teach us in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. That's how we're to pray. Lord, let thy will be done. Let thy will be done in me. Let thy will be done in my life. And as we think about the subject of the will of God and the the problem of discerning it at times, we must understand that there are several facets to God's will. In the first place, we can talk about God's sovereign will. This has to do with God's decree. And this, for you and I, is secret. We don't understand and we're not let into the secret of the decrees of God. That which he has purposed from all eternity. That's his sovereign will. God's sovereign will, in fact, concerns his control over all of his creation. And let me just mention several scriptures here. In Proverbs 21 and verse 1, with this wonderful statement, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God has a will, and in carrying out that sovereign will, he can turn the hearts of men. There's a wonderful example of that in the king Cyrus in the Old Testament, right there at the end of Second Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra. It mentions God's control over that man's decision-making. God's sovereign will, his decree. Again, that's something that was spoken about in Daniel chapter 4 by King Nebuchadnezzar when the Lord taught him a lesson. It was a lesson about sovereignty, about who was really in control. And he said this, Daniel 4, verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, that's God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Notice the mention of his will. That's his sovereign will. Again, it's something that Paul talked about to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1 verse 11, he refers to the fact that we have been predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things, notice this, after the counsel of his own will. That's God's decree. That's God's sovereign will, what he has purposed from all eternity. And with one other scripture, I'll finish this particular part. Revelation 4, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, watch this, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. It's all to do with God's will, his decree. The theologian Augustine said, nothing happens unless the omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. God's sovereign will. So therefore we can say nothing happens by chance. A lot of people in the world like to talk about luck and happenstance and chance. No, nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens outside God's control. And there are many illustrations of that that we could give. 
friend of ours, Victor Maxwell, who spent many years as a missionary in Brazil, said that as a young Christian he was introduced to the Navigators, an organization that was set to give counsel and a plan for growth for new Christians. The founder of the Navigators was a man called Dawson Trotman. And Maxwell said, I still remember the day I was shocked to hear of the untimely death of this gifted and greatly effective young man. He had been to Scroon Lake in New York and had decided to have one last run on the water skis. In fact, it turned out to be his final run. For it ended in a tragic accident in which Dawson was drowned. His friends were shattered. And it is said that when they phoned Dawson's wife to tell her the sad news, they just blurted out the words, Lila, he's gone. Although she was stunned, she quietly answered in return Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. I tell you, it takes grace to respond like that. But that woman was absolutely right. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. His sovereign will. It's part of his decree. Of course, we can also talk about his moral will. And... Having talked about his, demand, his uh, decrees, we must now turn to his demands, his moral will, what God demands. All his commands to all his creatures, God is holy and thus he demands holiness. That's God's moral will. He demands and he commands cleanness in us. And think of the scriptures that refer to this. If you want to talk about the will of God in this matter, you go no further than 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. We know that's the will of God. This is God's moral demand. But he goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There is the will of God. And I can tell you that's not easy. Because it says in everything. Can you thank God for everything that happens in your life? I can tell you it's hard to get the words out sometimes. Because of things that take place. But we must do this. Because this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. God wants us to thank him. Even for those contrary providences that come upon us. Because they're for a, a greater purpose. Again, we think of this moral will of God. His demands. And turn to First Peter chapter 1. Verses 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. It means manner of life. 
because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. There's the will of God. It, God's will is that we be holy. It is the will of God that we obey His Word. We are obliged to conform to the demands of our God. His commandments are not grievous. And 1 John 3 and verse 23 records, And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another as He gave us commandment. There is the will of God in a moral sense. So there's His sovereign will, His decree. There's His moral will, His demands. But then we come to this, His personal will for us. And this has to do with His design. What about God's personal will for you? Is there such a thing? I've known of some Christians, even preachers who have denied this, tried to say that God doesn't have a great and wonderful individual plan for each life. But I beg to differ. God has a great plan for your life and mine. And God's plan for your life is not necessarily his plan for mine, and vice versa. But there is a blueprint. There is a wise design that he has for each of us. And that personal and individual plan is revealed to us as we pray and as we walk with God. Say, how can I know the will of God for my life? How can I know the will of God for my particular circumstances? What the Lord exactly wants me to do? Well, let me refer you to what Paul wrote to the Roman church. Rather, the church at Rome. Romans chapter 12. The first two verses... Perhaps you know these verses well. I beseech you, brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. What for? That, in order that, ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Lord wants you to know His will. And again, we go back to that verse in Psalm 32. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. It's referring to the individual. So the will of God for me as an individual has to do with my calling. And it's here that the discerning of God's will can be very difficult, but it's also so very important. As soon as Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul, was converted, when he got up off the ground after being knocked to the ground by the Lord, he said something, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? He knew that God had a will for him. He knew that there was a place where he should be. There was a work that he was supposed to do. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now we see that fleshed out in Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 16. 
when we read there in those opening verses, we see that Paul is on the move, and he and others were going around various places. Verse 5 says that the churches were established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now look at verse 6 of Acts 16. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. The Lord said, no, no, I don't want you to be preaching there. That's not, at this particular time, my will. You're forbidden to preach in Asia right now. So they traveled on. After they were come to Mysia, they assayed to go into Bithynia. That means they, they tried to go into Bithynia. They, they wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. That means he didn't allow them. So here they are going to try to go into another place. They couldn't go to Asia. The Lord didn't want them there. They were going to go to Bithynia. The Lord didn't want them there at that time. So they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. Now notice this in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. You see this? God had an actual will for Paul and his companions. There was a place of service. What has that got to do with us? Well, it's everything to do with us. Because I can tell you as a Christian, there's a place where you should be. There's a place where you're supposed to live. There's a place where you're supposed to work. There's a church that you're supposed to attend. And all of these things come into the matter of God's will personally for you. Whenever Peter was restored to God's favor, to the Lord's companionship in John chapter 21... He began to be very interested in what God's will was for somebody else. It says in verse 20 of John 21, Then Peter, turning about, saith the disciple whom Jesus loved following. That's the author of the book of John. It was John the Beloved. He's following behind, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? See, the Lord had only just told Peter, here's my will for you. Whenever you're an old man, they're going to carry you where you wouldn't go before. They're going to stretch their hands out. They're going to carry you where you wouldn't go before. He's talking about the fact that Peter was going to be crucified as an old man. Because verse 19 says, this spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. So the Lord's telling Peter, this is my will for you. When you're an old man, you're going to die as a martyr. And so Peter immediately turns, well, Lord, what's your will for this man? What's he going to do? What did Jesus say? Verse 22, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Never you mind, Peter. Never mind what God's will is for him. I'll take care of that. I just want you to follow me. I want you to do my will. See, God has a will for you personally. And you must endeavor to find out 
if you're in the will of God. And you can know this great assurance because the Lord himself will give it to you. I always think there, in this regard, about an illustration that was once given to me. There was a man on a ship and he used to guide this ship from dark waters into a very narrow harbour and he always got it right. And someone who was travelling on the vessel with him had seen this a number of times and he was puzzled by this. He said, how in the world do you know where to take this vessel just to get it exactly into the right channel to get into the dock? And the man said, do you see those three lights on the pier? Yes, I see them. He said, whenever those three lights become one light, when they're perfectly aligned, I just make a beeline for that light and it carries me right into the harbour. And a preacher took that illustration and he said, there are three great lights in determining the will of God. There are the circumstances, the providential circumstances in which you find yourself. That's number one. And then there's inner peace and contentment that the Lord gives to you. That's the second light. And the third one is the Word of God, the Scriptures, and what God will tell you through His Word. And when all three of those are aligned, you can be just about sure that's the will of God for your life. I've always remembered that. I've always tried to act upon it. Sometimes in talking to a young man, he might tell me that he thinks he's called to preach. I'll say, well, there's three great lights that you need. Desire, ability, and opportunity. Do you have the desire to preach? And when I say the desire to preach, that you can't be content doing anything else in life. You simply will not be content doing anything else. Desire. But then there's the ability. And that's not for you to discover. That's for other people to discover. And believe me, if you're not a preacher, other people will recognize that and they'll be able to tell you you're not a preacher. Or they will be able to tell you, you know what, it might be in raw form, but boy, you've got, you've got the, the basics. You've got what it takes. Desire, ability, and then, of course, there's the opportunity. The doors that the Lord opens in order that you might be in ministry. And again, that's something I put into practice in my own life. And I believe the Lord has helped me to know his will as a result of that. But the will of God is that which may be discerned. And you should never rest until you know this is the way. Walk ye in it. You'll hear that voice behind you. Why is the voice behind you saying this is the way walk in it? Because you're going the wrong way and the Lord's saying, no, come back. This is the way. Walk in it. But there's a second thing I want us to think about. Not only can we think about the problem of discernment and discovering the will of God, but secondly, the power for enablement in doing the will of God. The power for enablement in doing the will of God. Of God. Now, when you read chapter 1 of Colossians, it could be said that Paul's prayer there was about the Colossians themselves discerning God's will. 
But Epaphras' prayer, mentioned in chapter 4, was about them doing God's will. And here's the two things coming together. The discerning of God's will, finding out what it is, and then the doing of that will. There's no point in us knowing what God's will is if we're not willing to do it, right? So God wants you to know what His will is in order that you might perform it. God wants you to know what it is that He wants you to do in order that you might carry it out in obedient service. This is what I want you to do. But the desire and the power to do it comes from the Lord Himself. When I was a young man of about 16, I think it was at the time, there was a godly elder in our church at the Martyrs. And uh, I hastened to add, I was not a dropout. But I did leave school at 16 because I started school at age four, not six, four. And that wasn't kindergarten, that was first grade, age four. So by the time I was 16, I was done with school and I was going to work a job, just a regular blue collar job. And this elder, this godly man, long since been with the Lord, he met me one day just after church in a very strong Southern Irish accent. I remember him saying to me, Well, Stephen, what are you going to do when you leave school? I told him I was going to work this particular job. Ah, he said, maybe the Lord will call you into the theological hall. I did not want to hear that. I did not want to hear that. I didn't say anything to him. But I was not happy with that. You know why? Because I think the Lord is already dealing with me. The Lord is already turning my mind in that direction. I didn't want that. I was fighting it. So fast forward a few years. I got an opportunity to go to Scotland in 1978 to go and work in a Christian office. Same organization that my wife worked for, except I didn't know at the time, didn't know her, didn't meet her yet until I went to, to take up that job. I remember the day I was standing in the Martyrs Church and Dr. Paisley knew that I was going to be moving over to Scotland. And he just brought out a book of sermons called The Man and His Message. So he wrote a beautiful inscription in the front of it, which of course I still have and cherish. In which he said something like, to Stephen as he begins to work for the Lord in Scotland. Then he signed it with his usual Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. So he said to me, what are you going to be doing when you're over there in Edinburgh? So I told him. Oh, I said, Stephen, anybody can do that. But there's only one call. And it's the call to the ministry. And with those words ringing in my ears, I moved over to Scotland to do that job. Wasn't so very long after that, though, a couple of years after that, the Lord really challenged me about the ministry, and the rest is history. I entered the Theological Hall in 1981, 42 years ago, and here we are. That was of God. When men said things to me, I believe the Lord put it on their hearts. Because whenever I called my mother in 1980 to tell her that God had called me into the ministry, she said, Son, 
I prayed for that since before you were born. Because I, I had a feeling that it was going to be a boy. Didn't know for sure in those days, but I thought this might be a boy after having two girls. I hoped it would be. And if it was, I was going to call him Stephen because I loved that story. With my father's agreement, of course. She said, but I prayed earnestly that the Lord would make you a preacher. Do you know that that was the first time in my life that I had heard that? How really discerning and smart my mother was. Because if she had told me through the years, you know, I'm praying the Lord will make you a preacher. I would feel that I had to do that, right? I, I would have to do that to please her. But she was so wise. Only after the Lord had called me did she say she had prayed for that all my life. I praise God for that. Whenever you are going to do the will of God, the Lord will enable you to do it. You've got to be willing to do it. And the Lord had to bring me to the place of willingness. He had to break me. Because I did not want to be a minister. I had no notion of being a minister. I had no desire to be in the ministry. But the Lord has a will. And he gives the power, the enablement to do that will. And I've talked about ministry. I've talked about the ministry. But doing God's will, let me tell you, is related to everyday living. Because when Epaphras was praying for the Colossians, he wasn't praying for ministers. Think about that. He's praying for a congregation that they would do the will of God. He was praying that they would know God's will for their lives. Not praying for seminarians. He's not praying for students for the ministry. He's praying for a congregation of the Lord's people that they would know the will of God and that they would do the will of God. And so when you look at chapter 3, there's a whole bunch of injunctions there in that chapter telling us that the will of God has to do with our everyday tasks, doing His will in society among men, how we're to treat others, how we are to behave in our employment, doing the will of God in the church. He talks about unity. He talks about that subject there, about being together in the work. There's our domestic relationships. Talks about the various tasks of wives and husbands. How wives are to obey their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents are not to provoke their children. Servants, masters, all of these things are talked about. Our place of employment. Everywhere and in everything, the will of God is paramount. We need strength and power to do the will of God. And that scripture comes into play, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. It doesn't say I can do all things, period. It says I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. If God calls you to do a work, he will give you the power and the strength to do that. And he will help you to do that, whatever the cost. But we must make sure that we are in the will of God at all times. This is so vitally important. Dr. Vernon McGee, who used to have a radio ministry. In fact, that ministry still continues long after he has died. 
He illustrated this, that the Christian will be given the strength to do all that God wants him to do. McGee said, a train is well able to travel at speed and accomplish what it is built to do. However, if you make or you take a train and put it downtown in a city to travel on a highway, it would be cumbersome and useless. The train is only useful as long as it stays on the tracks. The train can then do all that it should do and all that it was built to do. And then he said this, when we are on the tracks of God's will, he gives us the strength to do all that he purposes for us. Remember Gideon, when he hesitated to obey God's command, God said to him in Judges 6, 14, go in this thy might, have not I sent thee. Our sufficiency to do God's will comes from our confidence in his sufficiency in us. And by pouring in his peace, God enables us to do his will and accept any circumstance that comes about as a result. God may have something for you to do of which you feel incapable. I know I talk a lot about my wife and I don't make any apologies for that. But she was always such a great encourager. Especially an encourager of young people. When we were in our first church, she conducted the children's meetings. She headed up the children's work, Sunday school, and she taught and she was heading up the children's meeting. And we were going to be leaving to go to another ministry over in Scotland. And my wife was very concerned that there were several young ladies in the church that were not really involved. They came to the children's meetings. They sat among the children and they were a great help that way, but she wanted them to step up and do more. So instead of throwing them in at the deep end, I remember very well how she approached them. She talked to me about it first. And she would go to them and say, Now, do you think you could hold up one of the choruses for the children to sing? So, yeah. Good news, good news, Christ died for me. S-A-L-V-A-T-I-O-N. Love, love, L-O-V-E, all of those great songs. And then she said, well, do you think you could maybe do the Bible quiz? Just get the questions and the answers, the children answer. You put their hands up, answer the question, and you could do that. So she started introducing them into the children's meeting in that way. Then she lowered the boom. Now you've been able to use the children's lesson. You've been been able to use the children's choruses. You've been able to teach the memory verse and the quiz. I think you could teach the story. I think you could teach the story in the children's meeting. And before we had left to move to our next ministry, there were two young women in particular who were starting to do that. And after we left, they took over that work. What a blessing. What a great thing that is. But if you talk to those two young women, who are now married women with their own children, if you talk to them at the time, they would say, oh, I can't do that. I could never do that. Oh, no, 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 I could never do that. In fact, that's what they did say. But you see, when the Lord gives you the ability to do something that you feel incapable of doing, you will be able to do it. And with biblical examples of this, and Moses, remember Moses? Oh, Lord, I can't speak. 
you better call my brother to, to do this and help me with it because I can't speak. The Lord said, I'll be with your mouth and you will lead the children of Israel. And Jeremiah, oh Lord, no, I can't do this. I'm, I'm but a child. The Lord said, no, I'll be with your mouth. I, I've called you from your womb, from your mother's womb to be my servant. And again, Gideon aforementioned, have not I chosen thee? Have not I sent thee? God enables us to do his will when we seek him for such strength. Maybe something that the Lord really wants you to do. And you're afraid to do it. And you're very hesitant to do it. Pray and ask him for strength and he will give you strength. He will enable you to do all that you need to do. Before I became a young minister, things used to scare me about the ministry. How could I come up with fresh material every week? How could I preach sermon after sermon? How could I sit down at the bedside of a sick person in a hospital and talk to them about the things of God? How could I conduct a funeral? How could I conduct a wedding? Those, all those things used to scare the life out of me. But the Lord gives the strength to do what he calls you to do. And here's Epaphras, and he's praying for God's will to be done in the lives of these believers. That's what he prayed for all the time, fervently. Lord, let them stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Give them power to stand and to do your will. But sometimes we as Christians need to have our wills broken in order that we might be willing to do his bidding. We could refer to Jonah Look what the Lord had to do to Jonah to get him straightened up and to get him in line. Jonah had to go down into the belly of the fish, which he described as being in hell. And the Lord still used him. There may be an unwillingness to bend and to yield and to do what the Lord commands on our part. But he's well able to bring us to the point of surrender. One of our heroes, if you like, when we were growing up, was a missionary woman who went to Africa. Her name was Emma Munn. Emma Munn, when I was a little boy, used to call me her little missionary boy. I think she always entertained the, the notion and the desire that I might go to Africa as a missionary. I think that's what she wanted. But Emma Munn had a great story. When she was a young girl, the Lord called her to be a missionary just as he had six of her siblings. But she was engaged to be married at the time. And she so wanted to be married to that man and she wanted him to go with her to Africa, to the mission field. He told Emma, I feel no such call to be a missionary to Africa. I don't want to go. And Emma Munn said it was the hardest decision she ever made in her entire life. She had to break off that relationship, give him back the ring, God is calling me to be a missionary and I'm going. And she used to tell us in the youth fellowship, people used to say, Emma, you know, you could have been married and have children. Oh, she said, I know, but God called me to the mission field and made me a mother to thousands of children. She led many to the Lord in Africa. Of that I'm sure. But the Lord had to break her. She said it was the hardest thing she ever did in her entire life was to break off that 
engagement. The Lord is able to bring us to the point of surrender. Another missionary, I mentioned him a while ago, Victor Maxwell, he told the story of how the Lord made him willing to surrender to go to the mission field. One time, Victor went with a group of young people to a place called Port Stewart, very well-known spot, a resort there in Northern Ireland. And Victor said as a lad he had been challenged many times about God's will for his life. A party of young people had gone to Port Stewart on the north coast for a day in the month of July. After some swimming in what was known as the Herring Pond, Victor said, I got into difficulty trying to help someone who was a non-swimmer. I was quite sure I was drowning as I sank several times and my lungs began to fill up with water. Somehow, Victor said, I made it to the rocks where I held on for a moment. And just then, a passerby who had seen us in difficulty threw out the life belt. Then they dragged me to shore where a doctor from a church in Belfast administered artificial respiration, CPR. Victor said he was wrapped in blankets and rushed to the nearby Coleraine Hospital. In the hospital, he said, I was humbled at how God had miraculously spared my life. I was a Christian, and in prayer I thanked God for his preservation. However, I was also greatly challenged that God had preserved my life for a purpose. In that hospital ward, as best as I knew how, I handed my life over to God for his will for my life. And he said, this is what I said. Anything, Lord, any place, Lord, any time, Lord, at any price, Lord. Anything, Lord, any place, Lord, any time, Lord, at any price, Lord. It was then I understood God's call on my life that would lead me to the Amazon in Brazil as a missionary. Then he quoted this hymn. My stubborn will at last has yielded. I would be thine and thine alone. And this the prayer my lips are bringing. Lord, let in me thy will be done. Shut in with thee, O Lord, forever. My wayward feet no more to roam. What power from these my soul can sever, the center of God's will, my home. Sweet will of God, still draw me closer till I am wholly lost in thee. Is it true of you tonight? Is it true of me? Oh, I delight in his command. Love to be led by his dear hand. His divine will is sweet to me, hallowed by blood-stained Calvary. Jesus shall lead me night and day. Jesus shall lead me all the way. He is the truest friend to me, for I remember Calvary. May the Lord help us to discern and to do the will of God.